0: Welcome back to Corn Serap, a horror podcast. I'm Tyler. And I'm Mike. Mike, we've made it. The final ten movies of the six major slasher franchises. It's been a hell of a ride.
1: Dude, I feel like my eyes are bleeding from watching so many horror movies, but these last ten movies have been fun to watch. Follow us on Twitter, guys, please. Uh, We're up to 600 followers on Twitter. Me and Ty are very proud of that, because... Our personal Twitter accounts are nowhere near that, so we feel very popular every time we log on to our Corn syrup Twitter. Uh, so follow us on there at Corn syrup Pod. Follow us on Instagram as well at Corn syrup Podcast.
0: Let's get right into it. Number 10, we have Halloween H2O, the
1: supposed ending to the Laurie Strode trilogy. Halloween Water. I love this movie, man. This was the first movie I've seen... Of these 51 that we're covering Uh, so this one hits home for me a little bit I'm right
0: there with you you know what this was the first time Michael Myers ever felt modern influenced by Scream and specifically Kevin Williamson the writer of Scream 1 2 and 4 the story here in Halloween H20 is actually based on a story that Kevin Williamson wrote
1: yeah, it definitely has that 90s feel, uh, which we've never really felt in the Halloween movie. This was made in 1998, and the idea of scrapping previous sequels has never really happened before in horror movies. Like, now it seems to happen all the time. So, for this to happen 22 years ago, it was kind of the first time that we've seen this, and, you know, you kind of had to do it with the mess that this franchise was going with that storyline of Halloween 5, Halloween Curse of Michael Myers. There's no way they could continue that, so... What they gave us with Halloween H2O, just scrapping it, just going back to the basics of Halloween and Halloween 2. I'm really glad that they made that choice, and overall, it's a great movie. Yeah, like I said,
0: it feels modern, but you get some really good callbacks. You get Marion Chambers in the first scene. She's killed with a really effective slit throat. It's a really good opening scene. We get introduced to Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who ultimately gets an ice skate to the face. You get a really, really effective depiction of Laurie Strode, and I think, from what I understand, a pretty accurate depiction of PTSD. You and I have gone back and forth comparing this Laurie Strode to the one you get in halloween 2018 and we just feel this one is a lot more realistic
1: this laurie definitely drowns her sorrows uh with the booze and um it affects her family you know affects john played by josh hartnett where has josh hartnett been by the way i feel like we haven't seen him in the movie in forever it's been forever
0: i i I think i only ever saw him in one other movie it was black dahlia
1: yeah which was forever he was in uh, pearl harbor i don't want to get off topic but like he was a good actor back in the day we don't see him in anything anymore
0: What makes her more realistic is she's still a mother. Like, she's overprotective Mm -hmm. of John, her son. Mm -hmm. Halloween 2018, she's not much of a mother. She's not even much of a grandmother. Right. She's a crazy old lady in this one. She's an overprotective mother. She's paranoid. She's Mm -hmm. obviously in a lot of pain emotionally, Mm -hmm. but Uh, but but she's good at her job. Exactly. She's moved on with her life. She relocated to California, changed her name. Yeah, to start. She basically started over. And I just think, you know, there's that scene where she's out to lunch with her boyfriend played by Adam Arkin, where she gets a couple glasses of wine and the waiter kind of looks at her like she's a drunk. But to me, that's more realistic than somebody who raised her daughter to be like a master shotgun shooter like we get in 18.
1: Target practice in her backyard. Yeah. And then the fact that Michael Myers is still her brother in this movie in Halloween 18, you scrap Halloween 2, so it's just the events of that movie. This movie, you know, she saw a lot more because Halloween 2 happened. Exactly. And it's her brother, so it's more personal. So you understand why she's so messed up in the head.
0: Yeah, she lived through everything that happened in the hospital that same night.
1: Right. And in Halloween 18, she only lived through, you know, yeah. 20 minutes of, you know, and it's still a lot to go through. But damn, I mean, this Laurie Strode went through a lot more, and she's a lot more
0: sane you mentioned Josh Hartnett he plays Laurie's son John he's really good in this I he think is. he's very good as a teenage son who's impacted by a distraught mother an alcoholic mother his girlfriend Molly is played by Michelle Williams who's gone on to have a fantastic career
1: nominated for four Oscars I think since yeah then? yeah
0: those characters feel real a lot in part due to the performances by Hartnett and Williams but also their friends feel very real too they, they feel like teenagers
1: uh, they do Um, I do like the school feel of the movie. It seems like a movie that's set in California, like Northern California, I think it is. Yeah, Uh, You definitely get that feel. Uh, You have the character of LL Cool J. He plays Ronnie. Very good side character. Very funny.
0: Let's talk about the ending to this movie, because it should have been the perfect ending to what we deem to be the best slasher trilogy ever, meaning Halloween, Halloween 2, and H2O. It's just a great ending i remember seeing it as a kid it's similar to the ending in halloween 4 where it's just an it's an absolute holy shit moment and it still holds up today obviously it's been a little bit cheapened looking at the messy timeline of the franchise
1: when you watch this movie you kind of just ignore what happens after and when you just take it in as this movie just by itself it's a great ending it's how this franchise should have ended i wish it ended that way
0: the working title for this movie was Halloween 7, The Revenge of Laurie Strode. Ooh. I'm not sure it's a great title, but it makes sense. I mentioned Kevin Williamson when we first started talking about the movie. You know, before we did these rankings, I'm not sure I knew how important this guy was to the slasher yeah. genre but he really had his hands all over this movie too. You know, yeah, can tell
1: the people that made Scream had somewhat of a say in this movie. It just has that 90s feel, Scream feel.
0: Yeah, like the characters are sexier. It just it just feels <laughs> modern. The writing is a lot
1: more modern. And the music too. They literally take music from Scream and put it in this movie.
0: In fact, it was Williamson who wrote the paramedic storyline, the twist at the end. Mustafa Akkad, who owned the rights to the franchise at this point, had a contract clause that stated that the writers could not kill off Michael Myers. So they knew that Resurrection was going to be a movie, and they knew that, in fact, was not Michael Myers at the end of this movie.
1: Yeah, I think if Halloween H2O made over a million dollars at the box office, they would have found any excuse to make a sequel. And uh, it made $55 million at the box office on a $17 million budget, which 22 years ago is kind of crazy because Halloween 18, I think, was a... 10 million dollar budget so they kind of went crazy with that uh rotten tomatoes this has a 52 percent audience gave it 44 so by no means this movie was critically acclaimed but me and ty will always have a soft spot for this movie
0: i wonder what the audience didn't like about it i understand the critics reception the audience is a little weird
1: this is kind of like the sequel fans always wanted right
0: i thought so so minor complaint before moving on give me your thoughts on chris durand who portrays michael in this film
1: my least favorite michael myers probably isn't Uh, that a shame it is in such a good movie Uh, emotionless i guess is a good word to say uh his mask or his mask plural suck it seems like he's wearing a different one every scene i know the opening scene he's actually wearing the same mask they use in the curse on michael myers in uh, the scene with marion chambers and after that it just like changes colors blue it's pale white it's not a good michael myers what do you think yeah i
0: well i hate the mask at one point it's cgi i don't know if they put i I guess they had to perform a couple of reshoots or something but i don't know he he looks bad he walks with too much personality if Mm -hmm. that makes any sense like he swings his arms a lot He just looks goofy, and I think he's probably the least scariest Michael we get in the entire franchise, which is unfortunate because it could have made this movie even a little bit better if we had a better portrayal.
1: I feel like this would have been a good time to bring back Nick Castle or Dick Warlock or someone, you know, that— George P. Wilbur. George P. Wilbur. Why not?
0: Moving on to number nine in our rankings is the best Child's Play installment. Not a whole lot better than the original, but this is Child's Play 2. This movie came out two years after the original in 1988. This came out in 90. This movie's just a little bit better than the original. Not that we didn't enjoy the suspense in the original, but in this one, there's no more murder mystery. So you get Chucky right off the bat.
1: This movie's only 84 minutes long, shortest of the franchise. This movie's super fast-paced. It is
0: the second installment of what I deem the Andy Barclay trilogy. You get one of the best characters in the entire franchise, and that's Kyle, our final girl. She's a great final girl. Great final girl, portrayed very nicely by Christine Elise. You know, she she takes over as basically a mother-type figure to Andy Barkley. It feels very natural because they're, they've are they both been in and out of foster care, so she understands. She understands a lot of the emotional distress that Andy is going through, even though naturally she does not believe him about Chucky being alive at first. Also, Alex Vincent in this movie is better than he is in the original. That he came a long way in two years. He feels a lot more polished in this movie from an acting standpoint.
1: In this movie, he's actually scared of Chucky. You know, he kind of feels more like a victim. Just an innocent little kid in the first movie who just kind of listens to Chucky. Um, in this movie, he's kind of more running away.
0: Dorf's fantastic in this. There's the kill of Missile's Kettlewell, the teacher.
1: My favorite scene.
0: Amazing animatronics when he walks out with the, uh, I guess it's a yardstick.
1: And And with that great score playing. This yeah. movie has the best score of the franchise. Maybe my top five favorite score.
0: And this is where you really begin to get a lot of great Chucky one-liners, like when Phil dies in the basement. How's it hanging, Phil?
1: That Miss Kettlewell scene was actually supposed to happen in the first movie, along with the Toy Factory scene. So those are my two favorite scenes of my favorite movie of the series. Actually, was supposed to be in the original.
0: Well, the Toy Factory scene, I would argue that that's the best third act of any of these 51 movies
1: you have a solid point there (laughs) t-bone
0: yeah it's a it's a lot of fun like there's a lot of gore kyle kicks ass andy kicks ass brad dorff is on the top of his game there's a point where chucky has to rip off his own hand because he's trapped
1: he replaces it with the knife
0: Yeah, and then at the end he's blown up and he turns into a pile of goo. And then obviously you get one of the more iconic child's play kills ever where the the factory worker dies on the assembly line.
1: Love that scene when the factory worker, who you know is there just to die, is up there fixing the toy machine.
0: Chris Sarandon was originally meant to reprise his role in this as Mike Norris from the original. Um, unfortunately, he had to be cut out due to budget restraints. So there is a little bit of a gap in the storyline. Like, why didn't Mike Norris come out and corroborate Andy's claims that Chucky is alive? <laughs> yeah. They kind of half-heartedly explain it in the beginning with the toy executive he said that the cops denied it because they knew that nobody would believe them so i guess he basically chose being a cop
1: and even though there was another witness in the house at the yeah at the end of the first and he
0: basically gets karen sent to a mental institution yeah
1: this movie um actually had a scene written uh that would start with karen barkley who was originally supposed to be in this movie. They eventually wrote her out. But the movie was going to start with her in the courtroom testifying, and it was eventually scrapped, but they kind of used that scene in The Curse of Chucky with Fiona Doris' character.
0: When we were speaking about curse in our last episode, Curse of Chucky, you said Nika was your favorite final girl. Is Kyle your second favorite final girl in this franchise?
1: Yeah, and it's really not close. It's one, two, and Karen Barkley, three. Kyle just comes off as super likable because of the whole foster
0: child aspect right. of it. You you know you root for it just based on that. She's been She's, bouncing around. i um,
1: introduced to, and like she kind of just seems like a character that's going to die off, and then like she actually grows into a character that you like. Yeah, she builds of her relationship with Andy. Right. She builds with
0: importance as the movie goes on. I wouldn't say it's easily the best movie of the franchise. It's only a little bit better than Child's Play. And that's really just because it's better paced. You get Kyle, who's fantastic. And you get a lot more Brad Dorf.
1: Yeah. I think every Child's Play fan has this movie at least top two or three.
0: Moving on to number eight
1: in our rankings is the
0: second best installment of the Friday the 13th franchise. This is Friday the 13th part six, Jason lives. This movie, uh, broke down a barrier in a sense back in 1986 directed by Tom McLaughlin. This is certainly unlike any Friday, the 13th movie. We got up to that point and probably there hasn't been another Friday, the 13th movie quite like it.
1: Uh, yeah, this movie feels like it was made by Wes Craven in a way. Uh, it's definitely a precursor to the scream franchise and, uh, Kevin Williamson actually said that this movie influenced him to make Scream.
0: You have to call this movie ahead of its time, right?
1: Oh, it's definitely, yeah. For being, when it came out in uh, 1986... Yeah, it's like poking fun at its own franchise in, in a way.
0: Part 5 really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Jason was dead, and for whatever reason, the filmmakers in Part 5 wanted to keep it that way, so it was a copycat killer. But people wanted Jason. They knew the idea of resurrecting Jason was absolutely ludicrous, so they decided to have some fun with it. I love this movie. It works for me on pretty much every level. Tom Matthews is Tommy Jarvis. He's kind of a bizarre actor. I wouldn't call him a great actor. But the way he acts really fits in well with the tone of the movie.
1: It's it's an upgrade from Part 5 Tommy Jarvis. He actually has some personality.
0: And John Shepard was actually asked to reprise his role as Tommy Jarvis in this movie.
1: Right. He's actually a born-again Christian. I don't think he was a big fan of Part 5, which is actually kind of funny because that's like the dirtiest movie of the franchise. Directed by a porn director. Yeah, and he's in that one, but he (laughs) says no to Part 6. Part 6 actually had trouble. Um, Most movies in this franchise had to fight with uh, the MPAA. You know, to get from an X rating to an R rating, this movie actually was almost PG-13, and they had to fight for it to get an R rating. Oh well, wow. it's the only movie that did not show boobs either. In yeah, no there's franchise. no, new,
0: and there's a sex scene, but they're all fully clothed, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this movie really delves into the comedy aspect, but it's not overdone it's done in a good way and it also becomes self-referential a lot of the characters in the film reference horror movies and there's even a scene where the gravekeeper breaks the fourth wall looks directly into the camera and says a lot of folks sure have a strange idea of entertainment
1: and you got the scene uh tony goldwyn's character and his girlfriend and she even says oh i've seen enough horror movies to know someone in a mess you don't mess with
0: yeah and jason himself so he's essentially become a zombie in this film and there's really almost no defeating him you can't hurt him in any way and there's the there's the point where in the paintball scene where he rips the guy's arm off and then he picks up the guy's arm and looks at it like you know, he didn't even recognize his own strength. This is the beginning of Jason just being on a whole new level.
1: And it's funny you, you bring up the paintball scene. Did you know that's not CJ Graham? That's Dan Bradley. He was a crew member. That was the first uh, scene that they shot. Looking at the footage, the uh, producers thought he was too fat. So they fired him. And, and it's funny, if you look at it, you actually notice he does look bulkier. It's and a bigger. little pudgy. Yeah, so they fired him, and they kept that scene, but then they hired uh, C.J. Graham.
0: Good move. Yeah. Because C.J. Graham is great. He's actually very scary, especially in the beginning scene when they resurrect him. And there's the scene, it's kind of shadowy. You can't really see his face, but you see the maggots dripping off his
1: body. And the um, close-up of his eyes, yeah. He's, uh, without a doubt, top three Jason for me.
0: But Jason is just super, super strong in this movie. There's the scene where he twists the girl's head completely around. Great kill. And my personal favorite kill in this movie, top 10 probably of the franchise for me, is with the sheriff when it's actually a pretty good fight scene, but then he just folds the sheriff literally in half, just bends him backwards. Like a, yeah. So like I said, the movie has comedic elements, but it's also very scary. Like that's a terrifying kill. Another thing that makes the movie scary to me is for the first time ever, I can't believe it took us this long to get here, but there's actually kids at Camp Crystal Lake.
1: Yeah, it's about time. And um, he uh, doesn't harm any children, so it's okay. He's not a complete monster. But seeing it from their point of view is pretty it's, scary. It's terrifying, especially when he's like leaning into the one girl who's terrified. You get a close-up of his mask. Jason looks really good in this movie, too. He does. I actually like the, uh, the look with the gloves. Yeah. C.J. Graham was a military man, so that's kind of what he based his performance off of.
0: The ending to this movie is very scary, too, and suspenseful, where Tommy's basically luring Jason into the water in his attempt mm. to drown him. It's a really cool scene, and ultimately he does drown him, or at least he ties him down underwater. There's really no killing this version of Jason. Right. But that scene in the lake was actually filmed in director Tom McLaughlin's dad's swimming pool. Oh, really? And they destroyed... So it's, it's a big pool. Yeah. And they destroyed the pool filter because of the, the fake gore that they yeah. had running out of it.
1: Did you know Tom McLaughlin was actually offered to direct Scream? And he turned it down? Yeah, I think he did. Yeah. Wow. Maybe it was all for the best because Wes Craven obviously did a great job. Yeah, but you can't I rival th- Wes. Right. But I I think they saw what he did with this movie. You know, Scream was going for the same thing, basically.
0: It makes a lot of sense. This is really Scream before Scream. And right. I don't, like I don't, ten, 10 years prior to Scream. It's impressive, especially for the mid-80s, man, because a lot of a lot of really mundane and cookie-cutter slashers right. will come... There's a lot of slasher fatigue around this time.
1: I mean, it's not like there was any gap from part five to six. It was one year, so it's not like, you know, part five happened and they wait five years to resurrect the franchise.
0: Yeah, in, in fact, part four, five, and six were three consecutive years. Right. I mean, this movie is really one of the more ahead-of-its-time movies on our list.
1: Fans definitely didn't want to... Uh, Uh, I think they were fed up with Jason because this was actually the first movie in the franchise to not bring in $20 million, and you kind of saw the decline after this Part 7, Part 8, and then eventually they sold their rights to New Line Cinema.
0: Yeah, this is a movie that's definitely looked back upon more fondly than it was at that point.
1: Right. It's a cult classic, if you will. Do you think
0: most Friday fans have this in their top two or three?
1: I was just going to say, I think... Every Friday the 13th fan that has seen every movie at least a few times has to have this movie in their top three. I think a lot of them might have it as their top. favorite, right.
0: Moving on to number seven, we have, speaking of Wes Craven, we have Scream 2 released in 97. The fact that this was released just one year after the original film that you and I love, that alone is extremely impressive. You get the return of Sidney Prescott, who's even a little bit more mature in this film, a little bit more badass. You get the return of Courtney Cox as Galweathers, Weathers, who's even a little bit more of a bitch. You had that scene where Courtney Cox introduces Sidney Prescott to Cotton Weary, like off the cuff.
1: That is such a dick move.
0: Yeah, and Sydney rightfully slaps her in the face. By the way, this movie's pretty funny. It's it's definitely funnier than the first screen. I think so, too. Even Gal Weathers' cameraman's pretty funny in this movie.
1: This whole movie just pokes fun at horror sequels, exactly what this movie is. And they have some pretty cool rules for the sequels. You know, the body count's always higher. A little bit more blood, I believe. More blood, yeah. They really dig deep with the comedy,
0: too. There's the rendition of the movie Stab with Luke Wilson and Tori Spelling. That's a great scene. That's pretty funny. Um, Randy Meeks is probably even funnier in this movie, played by Jamie Kennedy.
1: My favorite character in the first one, my favorite character for half of this movie, uh, his death is definitely the one that hits me the most in this franchise. I think he's the smartest character in the franchise, because he knows the rules to the movie. He he knows the rules to horror movies, like the back of his hand, and still ends up getting a pretty brutal death.
0: I was going to say, do you think he deserved a better death, though? Maybe one that was on screen?
1: Uh, he definitely uh, should have, especially in the middle of the movie. But that's kind of what makes it stick out because it was kind of random. Yeah. it was weren't a... expecting a character that lived in the first movie just to be killed off exactly. halfway through.
0: And even though it was off screen, it was a pretty clever scene where the van door just opens and mm-hmm. he gets scooped in. You can always count on the Scream franchise to have really good chase scenes. You get one of my favorites of the franchise here where Ghostface is chasing Gale in the recording studio. Now, I will say I don't really know how Dewey doesn't die in that scene. He's right. stabbed a million times. Especially
1: after what he went through in the first movie, in yeah. this movie. It's not like he's like the rock like where he can take a couple stabs. It's David Arquette. And like there's who...
0: blood coming out of his mouth right. and everything.
1: And I just gotta say, I do not like his character at all. His stupid faces he makes in this movie—he definitely in this not,
0: movie or just in general—like
1: like his face. I just hate David Arquette's face, nah, knob But I hate his character of Dewey in Scream One, Scream, especially in Scream Two. Uh, he kind of brings the movie down for me a bit.
0: What is it about David Arquette? Is his character written that way to be a goofball, or is that just his way of acting?
1: Right. I don't know if Wes Craven told him to act like a doofus and. I mean, if you've ever seen Scary Movie, they portray... um, Officer Doofy, right? Yeah. It's, like, perfect.
0: So this movie is, like I said, I think funnier and still very, very entertaining. But you also don't get the iconic kills in this one that you get in the original. I will say that they did a really damn good job of trying to match the intensity of the opening scene of the first one with the movie theater scene with Jada Pinkett Smith.
1: It's not only uh, the best scene of the movie, it's the scariest as well. The bathroom scene, just getting stabbed through the bathroom stall. And even with uh, Jada Pinkett's death, I mean, she's getting stabbed in the theater full of hundreds of people. Hey, that theater looked like a blast, by the way. It did. Uh, I'm I'm not that type of person, man. I would be pissed the fuck (laughs) off if that shit was going on during a movie I paid 12 bucks for. What do you think
0: about the ghost face reveals in this movie? To me, another reason why this is a level down from the original is they're not as good. Laurie Metcalf is really good as Billy Loomis's mom, but Mickey didn't really... He wasn't all that significant.
1: Mickey's is weak. Uh, he's hardly in the movie. I mean, I think now, watching this movie 23 years later, it's a little bit better because the actor, Timothy Oliphant, he's a pretty big name, so that kind of sticks out, but... His character was kind of like a nothing character in this movie. You see him what twice in the classroom and then in the cafeteria, and then he reveals to be the killer. I thought that was kind of weak. But what do you, uh, what do you think
0: about Laurie Metcalf, Mrs. Loomis? Yeah,
1: that that was a good reveal because her her whole motive was just revenge, and she kind of played like a creepy reporter, right. But you just
0: thought she was just that. Yeah, a yeah she was reporter. like a Gail
1: Weathers knockoff who would just get killed off.
0: Right. And she's very good. She plays a very deranged psychopath mm-hmm. mother. She has that. those
1: crazy eyes. She yeah. she just has a crazy look in her face, the the whole movie. Let's look at the Rotten Tomato scores on this movie. It's got an eighty two percent from critics, but only fifty seven percent from the audience. I thought I think that's kinda of weird, right? Like yeah. why wouldn't the audience like this movie? I kinda of thought it'd be the other way around. Twenty four million dollars to make this movie. 172 box office. I mean, Scream is just a monster at the box office. Every movie's bringing in at least $100 million.
0: We made Scream 3 the third best installment of the franchise, and to me it easily is. But do you think the gap between 2 and 4 is bigger, or the gap between
1: 4 and 3? The gap between 4 and 3. Agreed. 3 is like at the bottom of of the well. 4 and 2... 2 is clearly better than 4. I think most people would agree.
0: No, I think you're right. Uh, I think a lot of people think Scream 2 is the best of the franchise. Yeah. Which I I can't get on board with that. Number 6 is our favorite installment of our second favorite franchise. It is Friday the 13th, the final chapter. This is the fourth installment released in 1984, directed by Joseph Zito. I'll start out by saying... I think this was a movie that finally put it together. I think they took the best elements of 1, 2, and 3 and just created the absolute definitive Friday the 13th movie. It's the installment in the franchise that Easily has the best characters. I actually don't think there's even a close second. And also Tom Savini returned for this film.
1: This movie has the best final girl. I know last episode you said uh, Tina from part seven was your favorite. I'm going to disagree with you and say Trish is the best final girl. One, I think she's a good daughter. Your favorite final girl is a shitty daughter because she kills her father. (laughs) So screw her and screw you. And she's a good sister to Tommy Jarvis. And she's not bad looking for, for an 80s chick. But I I think she puts up a very good fight with Jason. Final twenty minutes of the movie, while still trying to protect Tommy, because you know it's kind of a burden to be like a dragon along a kid while you're trying to fight off Jason Voorhees.
0: She's definitely a kick-ass
1: sister, man. I really like the
0: relationship she has with with Tommy Jarvis. In fact, I really like the relationship that the Jarvis family has
1: in general. In general, it's not like your typical family that you see in a horror movie. You know, there's there's a divorced mother a teenage daughter, and a preteen son. You know, it's not, you know, these these camp counselors that we've been following around for the first three movies. It's something different.
0: Obviously, we're introduced to Tommy Jarvis here, played great by Corey Feldman. I adore the scene where he's looking out his window and the girl across the street is getting changed because it's that's just how any little kid would react.
1: We all were that age, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's kind of, I wouldn't want to say a fantasy for every kid, but we would act that same exact way if we were in that situation.
0: And his mom walks in and he acts like he's sleeping. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But even more over than Trish and Tommy, I mean, there's just other really good characters. Even the kids that are vacationing at Camp Crystal Lake, you get Crispin Glover, who's just
1: funny and charming. I uh love his storyline. Him him it's just him wondering the whole time if he's a dead fuck, quote unquote. Yeah, he's just trying and, to late. And he's just so paranoid about that the whole movie, and it's actually funny.
0: Yeah, his relationship with his friend Ted's hilarious. Mm-hmm. One of the more iconic Friday the Thirteenth kills is his death, not really because of how he dies, but the line and Crispin Glover's unique way of delivering that line. Right,
1: where's the corkscrew? So I'm gonna talk about my favorite Jason, Ted White.
0: You're going on the record.
1: That is going your on the record. I'm sorry, Kane Hodder. I'm sorry, C.J. Graham. Ted White. Uh, he's he's my favorite. He's he's the scariest. I don't know what it is about his chasings. He moves like somebody that has has a disability, and that's what Jason is. The look in his eyes is frightening. He looks slow, but at the same time, he looks like he wants to rip your head off. It's, it's a shame because Ted White never really embraced the role the way that Kane Hodder did. He was kind of always ashamed of it to the point where he didn't want his name in this movie because he didn't get along well with uh, Joseph Zito. He didn't like the way that the uh, director treated the cast members. He, He was actually asked to reprise his role in part six, and he said no. So I do wish he kind of embraced the role more. And God bless him. He's 93 and still kicking right now. He is a great Jason, man. And the end where
0: Tommy ultimately kills him, where his face slides down the machete, that is Tom Savini all day. Oh, yeah. Thank God Savini returned. He he stated that he wanted to return for this film to kill off the character that he helped create right. in the original. That's great. But you mentioned Ted White not getting along with the director, Joseph Zito. The actors didn't either. In that final scene where Corey Feldman is killing Jason and he's screaming, die, die. He's actually hitting two sandbags. And Feldman later stated that when he was stabbing the sandbags that he pictured that they were Joseph Zito. (laughs)
1: That's great. Supposedly, uh, Feldman and Ted White kind of had a little uh, back and forth on set. Ted White said he was nothing but a brat child actor. And uh, the scene where he dives through the window to uh, grab Corey Feldman, He he was supposed to go on the count of five, And he went on the count of two or three just to scare the shit out of Corey Feldman. So the uh, reaction that you see from uh, Tommy Jarvis is actually real. Maybe Ted White was just a little grumpy. Uh, Well, he was the oldest actor to uh, portray Jason. I think he was like 55 at the time. So, yeah, he kind of was a grumpy old man. To me, this is
0: just the definitive Friday the 13th. I think it's the the first Friday the 13th where Jason feels fully developed right. because in two, he's just a goofball. You know, he doesn't have his hockey mask either. Three, Richard Brooker is fine. I, I don't have a lot of complaints. But, it, but like you said prior when we were speaking about part three, you think Ted White kind of took the template that Richard Brooker put in place and really just approved upon elevated. it. Yep. And I agree. So I think this is the first fully evolved Jason Voorhees we get. The characters are easily the best of the franchise. If I had to show somebody one Friday the 13th movie, it would be the final chapter.
1: Right. This may not be the perfect slasher movie, but this is the perfect Friday the 13th movie. Let's go to number five. We have cracked the top five, Mike. 46 down. Five more to go.
0: And we are at the original A Nightmare on Elm Street, Wes Craven's Masterpiece, came out in 1984. I will preface this by saying this is my personal scariest movie of all time. When I watched this movie as a kid, I don't think I slept very well for like the the next week just the thought that Freddy Krueger with the burn face and the finger knives could infiltrate your dreams to like you're me. not safe.
1: Yeah. Everybody sleeps.
0: I just, so I just let's... couldn't I couldn't sleep. It was right. terrifying to me and I remember Johnny Depp's death specifically just scared the shit out of me.
1: Not not everybody will always go to a camp. Not everyone will travel to the backwoods of Texas, but everybody sleeps. And that's where Freddy's going to get you, man. This movie, I think, has the most iconic kills in horror franchise history. Tina's death and Glenn's uh. death. I'm sure we'll get more into those because they're just so legendary and so well done. And so well shot by Wes Craven.
0: I think this actually has the second best score of any of our films, too, outside of Halloween. Very creepy. The score here was composed by Charles Bernstein. When you hear it, you just think Springwood. You think Freddy Krueger and The Nightmare on Elm Street. Not only does this have some of the more iconic kills of any of these movies, but just some of the more iconic scenes in general. Like Robert Anglin coming through that rubber wall that they use CGI to try to replicate in the remake and they just found so miserably. one thing funny
1: about that yeah, is that this was done in 84 and the remake was 2010 and the 84 just looks so much more well done than it's that
0: the power of practical effects man sometimes it really it's just
1: better and the um image of his glove when nancy's taking a bath is just iconic
0: the image and just that scene in general where he keeps pulling her underwater mm-hmm. Something that really scared me as a kid too was Freddy's first appearance in the alleyway behind the house, yeah. where his arms are extended and he starts running.
1: That's such a great way to to introduce Freddy Krueger. That is his. That's the scariest scene that Freddy's in in all nine movies that he's been in.
0: And this is the introduction of Johnny Depp, like we said, as Glenn. And he's given a lot to work with here. Unlike you know maybe Kevin Bacon in Friday the Thirteenth, where Kevin Bacon died kind of early. Depp is given a lot here, and you can you can tell he's a really good actor.
1: Yeah, and, and he's not just some character there to just be killed off. Like you actually have a sense that him and Nancy are, are gonna make it through through the movie as like a strong power couple. And so then when Glenn dies and has that epic death scene, gets sucked into the bed, and five hundred gallons of blood is shooting up into his uh, bedroom. It's brutal, but. That's why we love it.
0: Nancy Thompson has to be a top five final girl of all time, right? Yeah, that's I mean,
1: like such a final girl name too. Nancy, Nancy Thompson in that's, the eighties, that's a great yeah. name. Yeah,
0: and I mean she had the balls to go into Freddie's dreamland and basically take him head on. I mean that that right there alone is that's top final girl material.
1: And Heather Langenkamp is great, man. She is, and she's great in uh, Part Three, and she's great in New Nightmare. I, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm always shocked that she was never in more. Yeah, I would have loved to see her in more. This movie was made on a 1.8 million dollar budget, so New Line Cinema was struggling. Uh they were bankrupt. Actually, and uh, this movie brought in twenty-five million dollars at the box office on a very low budget. So a lot of people say that New Line Cinema is the house that Freddy built, and it wasn't just a success at the box office. Critics love this movie. Ninety-four percent, unheard of for a slasher movie, right? Eighty-three percent for fans. I don't know what fans are thinking. Like this is fans should be giving this sh- a ninety-five. I don't least. know how. I don't know how you watch
0: this movie and don't think that it's revolutionary. Right. I'm always fascinated by, especially a guy like Wes Craven, like what what is the inspiration behind these movies? It turns out Craven took inspiration from, there was an article in the LA Times, actually multiple articles over a three-year period about these Asian refugees dying in the midst of these terrifying nightmares And also, Craven actually said that when he was a kid, he was bullied in school by a kid named Fred Krueger. And then, obviously, that's where the name Freddy Krueger was cemented.
1: You could actually say that this movie was based on a true story. Like, I, I know that's what Texas Chainsaw had, like, their, you know, like, that was, like, their marketing strategy. Like, they could have done the same thing.
0: The first studio to show interest in this movie was Disney.
1: Yeah. And they
0: wanted Craven to cater it toward kids and teens. I don't know what the hell Disney was thinking, but thank God Craven thought better of that. Robert Englund was not the original Freddy Krueger. David Warner was originally cast to play Freddy, but dropped out due to scheduling. And Craven actually spoke to Kane Hodder about taking on the role. And
1: this was prior to him being cast as Jason, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Craven's original idea of Freddy Krueger was a big, hulking-type figure. And then he decided to go for more what he called like rat-like or weasel-like. And when Robert Englund went into audition, he slicked back his hair. He took cigarette ash and darkened his eyelids. <laughs> Robert Englund kind of went all out in order to obtain this role and thank god he
1: did for future films do you think that there will ever be able to be a good freddy krueger not played by robert england
0: i worry about that i think there could be a good freddy krueger but i think i'm just cynical about it
1: and like you just hope that there will be right because like for jackie earl haley it, there's nothing he could have done like that that was just a shit movie
0: you, you bring up jackie earl haley johnny depp accompanied jackie earl haley to an audition for this movie. I think
1: he auditioned for Glenn and then like a giant depth just ended up getting it, right? And Mark Patton auditioned for Glenn
0: as well. Wow. Who ended up as uh, our scream queen in Nightmare 2. This movie to me, it's just, it feels iconic when you're watching it. Like the introduction of Freddy Krueger carries more weight because it's also the introduction to Robert Englund for me personally. It's not like you're being introduced to Jason or Michael where the actors kind of vary from movie to movie. Like Robert Englund is Freddy. So in a sense, you're being introduced to one in the same, Robert Englund and Freddy Krueger. That's
1: just so, so synonymous. Do you have any problems with this movie for as much as we like it? Because for me, the ending is a little, yeah, feels like an ending to like to like a movie like part four, part five doesn't seem like original at all.
0: And also, another minor gripe, really more so about the franchise in general, is the recurring theme of shitty parents. Mm -hmm. Like, the parents never believe their kids. They're always putting them to sleep with sleeping pills. Mm -hmm. But that's really more so a gripe about the franchise in general. John Saxon in this movie kind of takes on that role where he doesn't really believe Nancy.
1: Right. Right. But he uh, does grow as a character, especially in part three.
0: And that's uh, that's actually on purpose, by the way. Craven, he was actually quoted one time saying, in a sense, Freddy stands for the worst of parenthood and adulthood.
1: That's a very good theme.
0: It is a very good theme. It's a strong theme. I think it works in the original. I just think as the franchise goes on, it, yeah, they, they beat it over the head. This movie's obviously a classic it put west craven on the map craven was always willing to zig when others were zagging he did something different Freddy's not wearing a mask it's a burnt face he's not this big hulking figure
1: right Because friday the 13th is clearly a ripoff of halloween and this came out in the time of cheesy 80s slashers and he just did something so original and so scary
0: moving on to number four we are talking about the best sequel of these 51 films it is halloween 2 a movie that you and i have always adored we've always looked at it as the absolute picture perfect companion to
1: the 1978 original i love this movie take it away i think our bias is definitely showing here i mean it's got a 30 percent on rotten tomatoes and right now we have it at number four but screw those critics man this is the ultimate halloween sequel the ultimate slasher movie by the way it
0: came out three years after the original which to me tells me that they actually did put some some tlc into it it didn't yeah. just come out one year later like you get so often with friday the 13th and a lot of other franchises right.
1: and it came out three years later but it still came out the same year as friday 13th part 2 so it's not like it was basing off any of those sequels you know, it was still three uh, three years prior to the original Nightmare. So, you know, it was still a very original idea. I think the
0: hospital setting is terrifying.
1: It is. And it's perfect because if you're going to take place the same night, you know, that's where somebody would go after a night that Laurie Strode just had. I mean, let's talk about how it's the same
0: night. To me, I love that as a direct sequel.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I love how it picks up right where... Michael Myers is shot, and it shows him walking through the Haddonfield streets, lurking and stalking, exactly what he was doing in the whole first movie. He's still stalking. He goes into the Elrod's house, creeps in there a little bit, and he grabs his weapon. Like, like he doesn't kill anybody in that scene, and it's still terrifying. Um, and then he goes in Alice's house, and she doesn't have much luck. Because for as good as the original Halloween is, you don't really
0: get any closure. And I'm not one that really needs closure, right. but... I think with Laurie Strode being transferred to the hospital and the continuation of Michael Myers on that same night and you continue Dr. Loomis's pursuit of Michael Myers, to me,
1: it, it all works. That's something that um, – and I hate to go back to this movie because I feel like that we're very critical of it. That's something that I wish that Halloween 2018 hit on more is what happened to Michael then? Like if you're going to scrap Halloween 2, what yep. happened after he shot and like where did he wander off to? And they never mentioned that, and that always bothered me. And that's what I'm really glad, that this movie, it just picks right up. Like, there's no bullshit. Like, this is what Michael Myers uh, did as soon as he got shot.
0: We can wholeheartedly agree that this movie did not deserve to be retconned by 2018's Halloween. Not at all. You get the Mr. Sandman intro, Mm -hmm. and it's revisited in Halloween H2O, which I love. Right. The main reason critics didn't like this movie was they thought it was over the top
1: with the gore and the violence, to me, in
0: retrospect, that's comical.
1: Looking back, yeah. Like, you're wondering. Yeah. But, like I said, this is prior to Friday the 13th, part two, three, four. So, at the time, I can see them, you know, like they see a, a syringe in someone's eye, and that's probably the most gruesome thing that they've ever seen on film.
0: And it's funny, the gore and the violence, quote unquote, that these critics were overly critical about actually ended up being some of my favorite kills in the franchise. Specifically, my favorite in the entire franchise is the hot tub kill where he's dunking the lady underwater and eventually her skin just melts off. And then not long after that, you do get the syringe kill where he sticks the needle. That man, that that makes me cringe. The close up of the needle going
1: through the eyeball. Uh, It's very creepy. Um, This Michael Myers is is a menacing like he seems a lot different from part one from uh, Nick Castle's Michael Myers, but not in a bad way, right? No, not at all. I I really like Dick Warlock in this movie. Can I say hot take? Give it to me. He's my favorite Michael Myers. I like it. I love the way the mask fits his face. And it's the same mask used in Halloween 1. Dick Warlock is by no means a big menacing guy. Somehow he's still um, intimidating in the way he walks. He walks very slow in this movie. You get the epic conclusion in this
0: movie where Laurie shoots michael in the face and you get the blood dripping from his eyes that's a beautiful coming down his mask and michael
1: blinded by the blood starts swinging aimlessly the final 25 minutes of this movie may actually be my favorite of the franchise yeah i'd say from jimmy's character uh falling on his steering wheel to the end of the movie is probably my favorite uh you got the chase scene with Michael, with her bang on glass, Michael just walks right through the glass door. Like, mm-hmm. like it's obviously so silly, but it's at the same time it's like, oh shit, that's pretty cool.
0: You get Rick Rosenthal as the director in this movie. the The same gentleman who directed Halloween Resurrection. Our number
1: fifty one. Hey, so man. he directed number fifty one and number four.
0: He dropped. He directed a top five movie for us and
1: our worst you would talk about range he definitely has range
0: i'll say i'll say this about rick rosenthal i mean he obviously did a good job with the material here but it is said that John Carpenter took a lot of liberties in the post-production portion of this movie where he did a lot of things to make the movie a little bit more violent and a little scarier because Carpenter, him being the mastermind that he is, he saw that slasher movies were turning a little bit more violent right? and he just thought the film had to be scarier. And that did not sit well with Rick Rosenthal, but I think ultimately it turned out for the better.
1: Of course. Uh, when you So if we go back to Scream 2 and all their rules about horror sequels, I feel like they're talking about this movie. The kill count's always higher and it's gorier. Like Halloween 2 is like the prototypical horror slasher movie that did it right. And what do you think of the theme? Like the Halloween theme in in part 2. Because I feel like there was no need to change it. And they did. And I actually dig it. There's one specific moment where I
0: love it. And it's the chase scene in the hospital where Michael is chasing Laurie. And she ends up on the elevator. Mm -hmm. And the music is playing to me. That
1: is right on the money. So they upped the budget a little bit for this movie, $2.5 million as compared to uh, the original. It was 300000 I think. This brought in nowhere near as much as the original, but still brought in $25 million. Like I said, 30% on Rotten Tomatoes by the critics. Screw them. Halloween uh, fans love this movie. Though. Halloween fans, it's got a 63 by the fans. But you ask any Halloween fan what the best sequel is, they will most likely say this. I think Halloween
0: 2 is a movie that has gained a better reputation as time has moved on. Like I said, back in 81, they felt it was too violent, maybe even too scary in some ways. But I think looking back on it, man, I don't know how you could have made a better sequel to a movie that it was probably hard to make a sequel to because it was so iconic and classic.
1: This is a movie that will be on my TV around Halloween time every year until the day I die. Uh, I could watch it year-round i think it's one of the scariest movies i'll ever see in my life i remember the first time i watched it how scared i was and it's one of those movies that just holds up so well
0: moving on to number three is a movie you and i love it really broke down a lot of barriers in the late 90s it is where this podcast gets its namesake courtesy of billy loomis in the final act This is Scream from 96 by the mastermind of Wes Craven. It is a movie that was so badly needed at the time, the horror genre and specifically the slasher subgenre was really running on fumes and Wes Craven injected some new life into
1: it in a big way. I don't think there's a more self-aware movie, not just in horror, ever made. It's so smart, so funny, so well acted. It's hard to find faults with this movie, like to find a fault with this movie you kind of just have to like nitpick. Yeah,
0: if you don't like this movie you probably just don't like to have fun, because I've always thought this movie is just an absolute blast. It's very fast-paced, you get the whodunit aspect which adds a great layer of suspense. But yeah, I mean, this is easily one of the most influential movies on our list, one of the most influential horror movies of all time. For late 90s, even into the 2000s horror, it not only sparked new franchises that kind of felt the same in tone, like I Know What You Did Last Summer, but it also helped resurrect some slasher franchises that kind of felt like they were dead. Like you got H2O after this, and then you got Bride of
1: Chucky. So this movie starts off, it just pulls you right in. In my opinion, the opening scene is one of the strong points of this movie. But do you think this is the best opening scene in horror movie history?
0: Yeah, I do, man. And I think it's really helped because it's Barry Barrymore, too. It's a familiar face. I remember being scared to death when she turns on the patio lights and she sees her boyfriend with, with his guts hanging out. Yeah. That scared the shit out of me as a kid, man. And then you get where she's being dragged by Ghostface, face and her parents kind of
1: hear her on the phone. We were like four or five when this movie came out, but supposedly when this movie was marketed, she was a big star. Like, she was a top billing actor in this movie. Like, her name was first. When they showed trailers, they showed a lot of her, you know, and it was only one scene, but they kind of, like, cut it up to make it look like she was a star of this movie. So when she was murdered in the opening scene, like, that was shocking.
0: This movie was also huge in pop culture, man. We, you and I were kids, When this movie came out, but everybody had a screen mask for Halloween and they even made the ones where like they had the portable little blood thing. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And it wasn't just everybody. It was everybody and their mother had this mask, man. Like you couldn't go into a Halloween store. You couldn't go trick or treating without seeing that screen mask. And it wasn't just like a one year thing.
0: Yeah, the best thing about this movie, as much, I mean, I love it for a number of reasons, but this movie got people interested in horror again. I mean, what more can you ask for? But the comedy in this movie really works, man. You get Jamie Kennedy as Randy Meeks. He explains the rules of horror again in a very self-referential, meta way. You know, he says, number one, no sex. Number two, no drinking or drugs. Number three, never say, I'll be right
1: back. And I love the uh, characters in this movie because they're just horror fans. They quote horror movies. They know all the rules to the horror movies. Some of the other supporting cast are really good, too, like Henry Wingler. Right. You get Matthew Lillard in a
0: batshit crazy performance that I love, especially in that final act right. where he reveals to be one of the ghost faces. And Skeet Ulrich as Billy Loomis. I mean, they they just all work. And then, obviously, you get introduced to... Arguably the most kick-ass final girl of all time, Sydney Prescott, portrayed by Nev Campbell.
1: Right. So when we talk about the Scream movies, we always talk about how good was like the final like reveal, you know, of the ghost face killer. This obviously has to be the top, right? Cream the of
0: the franchise. crop. I I'm not sure. There's even I would say Scream Four might be number two, but not a close second. <laughs> no man, this works because. Unlike in Scream 2, we criticized Mickey, played by Timothy Oliphant, as mm-hmm. being one of the ghost faces. This one,
1: the ghost faces were right under your nose the, the entire time. time. Yep, they're, it's Sidney Prescott's boyfriend and Sidney Prescott's boyfriend's best friend. Don't you wish in a way, like, you were older the first time you saw this movie? Like, this movie just came out last year or something. I, I don't want to say it was wasted, but the first time I saw this movie, I was like 10. Yeah. I'm like, damn, I really wish I grasped it more, you know? I do, but it also came
0: out for the sake of the horror community. Probably at the perfect time. Yeah, man, Wes Craven was such
1: a genius. He it Really is, man. Makes me wonder if he was still around, like if just because of the like, like the type of director and writer he was, if he just had something else up his sleeve for one final show.
0: But back to Drew Barrymore, she was actually originally casted as Sydney in this film, but she had to uh, drop down to a much smaller role due to a scheduling conflict. No offense to Drew Barrymore, but I'm very thankful that we got Nev Campbell. She's just great. I mean, she's one of my favorite horror movie characters ever.
1: Dare I say it? Is she the best final girl of all time as well? I wouldn't argue
0: that. She, kick, she kicks
1: ass, man. She's smart.
0: She's sexy. She doesn't take shit from anybody. Right,
1: and she's had a tough life, you know, like the storyline with her mother being raped and killed.
0: She's never portrayed as somebody who's weak. You know, like even Laurie Strode is... Weak, yeah. Teenager, you know what I mean. Nev Campbell as Sidney Prescott. You never feel as though she's not capable.
1: No, I agree. Um, Cause this movie, it doesn't really have a high kill count. I think about seven people die in this movie, and it's a long movie. It's almost just shy of two hours. But the, most of the movie is just Ghostface messing with Nev Campbell and uh, Sidney Prescott.
0: I think Courtney Cox is really good in this, too. She said she wanted to play a bitch in this movie to offset her role in Friends. So this movie shattered box office records for the horror genre. Do you have the numbers there? It
1: did. So in 1996, this brought in $173 million, uh at the box office on a $14 million budget. It's actually the same amount that it brought in that uh, Scream 2 brought in, 173 to to the same dollar. That's crazy, though. When you think about it, there wasn't a good... A slasher movie for at least 10 years prior to this movie being made and to shatter box office records like it did um, at the time it was the most um, and then halloween 2018 came around and shattered it this has a 79 percent on rotten tomatoes uh, audience gave it a 79 percent as well so they agreed i think this movie aged so much better that if they could go back and change the score they would because this movie should at least be a 90.
0: It's hard to overstate how influential this movie actually was. And I think on that note, we can say rest in peace to Wes Craven. Top two, man. The suspense is about to be over. What is our number two? It is the movie that terrorized people back in 1974. It's one of the most controversial movies of all time. It is Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
1: An instant classic, man. My dad was telling me he saw this movie in a drive through in 1974, and I could not be more jealous. I, I wish I was there when this movie came out. Made on a shoestring budget of $300,000, the lowest budget of any of the 51 movies we've talked about. Uh, was an immediate hit at the box office, bringing in $30 million. This movie
0: is scary as hell, and the thing that scared me as a kid was... There was always this myth that it was based on true events. That's what it says in the beginning. Like back then, it wasn't – when we were kids, it really wasn't that easy to debunk that. Not everybody was carrying around a smartphone where you could just go online and look that up.
1: Especially a couple of kids. When uh, you're told something, you just believe it. Yeah. So for the longest time, I actually thought this
0: was based on true events, and that was terrifying to me. Toby Hooper did an incredible job here. Daniel Pearl, the cinematographer – is is one of the driving forces as to why this movie is His so first iconic movie too, by the way that's ridiculous yeah so the cinematography is like equal parts pretty equal parts terrifying and mm-hmm. uh, he, he pulled off a very rare feat it's it's very impressive
1: i don't want to spoil the fir- the uh number one movie but the main theme with these top two movies is atmosphere
0: The first half to this movie is kind of slow-burning. There's, like, this big build-up. And then the second half, it's loud and torturous. It's It's definitely loud. It's two different movies almost in one, and yet they're both just phenomenal.
1: It is, yeah. It's, like, the perfect build-up. Like, you have the um, hitchhiker scene. You're watching that scene, and, like, you're kind of thinking, like, this is as crazy as it's going to get. Like, it's a movie about cannibals. So, yeah, it's, like, they're all probably just, like, this hitchhiker. You know, he cuts himself. He tries to cut Franklin. He's clearly off the rails, but he's almost like the same one in the family when uh, you actually meet the entire family.
0: Yeah, in comparison. So back in 1974, this was banned in several countries, and a lot of theaters in the U.S. had to stop showing it because there were so many complaints about the violence. And looking back
1: at it, there's no blood in this movie. It's very tame. It is. And I don't know if it was just for that time, like they thought it was crazy, but... By today's standards, this movie would probably be PG-13.
0: So the iconic dinner scene took hours and hours to shoot. It was so hot, because this was filmed in central Texas, where it takes place. In the middle of summer. Yeah, and it was so hot that the food on the table started to rot. A lot of the actors started getting sick. They started throwing up. And Gunnar Hansen, who played Leatherface, said that he had to wear that mask for 12 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week for an entire month.
1: I also read that uh, they couldn't change their clothes because they didn't have really a costume budget. So they were in those same clothes too for days at a time in that weather. And it just smelled like shit.
0: And, in, and at that dinner scene, Marilyn Burns, who played the, really the first ever final girl, Sally Hardesty, that scene where they cut her finger, that's actually them cutting her finger. Yeah. They, they did use fake blood, but the practical effect did not work and they didn't really have it in the budget to try something else. So they actually just cut her. So a lot of the actors in this movie, man, like emotional distress, physical distress, it was it was a really difficult movie for this crew.
1: What do you think of the characters in this movie because I feel like you really get to know them well especially the first 30 minutes of this movie because it's really just following them the whole time and you know they're not being chased by a killer like you're just getting to know them so what do you think of them
0: Yeah I, I really like them I think they're they're done simplistically but I think it works because it's a pretty tame simplistic slow burning movie mm-hmm. Um, you get the iconic kill of Kirk, the first time we ever see Leatherface. He kills him with the sledgehammer, one shot, you're dead. He uh,
1: slides that door. That
0: I, I get chills every time he slides that door. I don't know what it is. Yeah, It's just so iconic, man. And then right after that, again, another iconic scene where he drags Pam back into the house and he hangs her on the hook. And then Franklin... I love Franklin. He, he's 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 so recognizable to me. When I right. think Texas Chainsaw, I think of Franklin just as much as I think of Sally Hardesty. Yeah. And Paul Partain, who played Franklin, actually stayed in character on set mm-hmm. because Franklin's kind of a whiny guy. Yeah.
1: And he said it was hard to turn that on and off. And you see Sally, you know, his sister. And not only is she a good final girl, but she's a good sister. You know, like having to push Franklin around in the woods late at night and ultimately he gets... Sawed up in another great scene.
0: You and I are in agreement that Scream had the best opening scene to a horror movie of all time. Mm -hmm. Is this the most iconic ending in horror history? Yes. If only because you get those two legendary shots of Sally Hardesty on the back of the pickup truck with the sun setting in the background and she's laughing maniacally. She's just been driven insane. And then obviously you get Gunnar Hansen as Leatherface with his Leatherface twirl with, you know, spinning the chainsaw around and around. You also get a really nice twist. It becomes a recurring theme in this franchise where side characters are actually in on it, like they're part of the Sawyer family. Mm -hmm. But in this movie, if you're looking at it from an originality standpoint, the fact that Drayton Sawyer ended up being the brother of the hitchhiker and Leatherface, that's a nice little twist.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because he kind of seems normal. And he's far from it. So Toby
0: Hooper, the director of this movie, was heavily inspired by Ed Gein, who uh, is a pretty well-known serial killer who used to kill and wear the faces of his victims as masks.
1: So that's how he was able to uh, get away with uh, Based on a True Story, because this was loosely based on the Ed Gein killings. This
0: is a movie that has really been critiqued by not just movie critics, but analysts. There's an animal rights theme. It's said to be a film that is very pro-vegetarian and in fact Toby Hooper confirmed that it is a movie about meat and he actually stopped eating meat
1: while filming it. I feel like this was a movie that like they didn't they didn't know that they were making a classic when they were making it. You can tell it was just made on a shoestring budget like they just kind of wanted to get the filming over with cuz you know from all all the actors accounts you know this was a bitch of a movie to make, but I feel like like they didn't really know what they were doing at the time, and then obviously just blew up and became a cult classic.
0: I really think it was a movie, man. I think Toby Hooper had some things that he kind of wanted to portray.
1: I actually do believe, like the underlying themes. Yeah. I really do believe
0: yeah. in those. Um, you know, the Vietnam War was getting ready to end about a year later after this came out. People were struggling financially. Like, middle America was just riddled with, like, Mm -hmm. desolate lands and poverty. And this movie really portrays that well. And then, capitalism the Sawyer family lost their jobs at the slaughterhouse because of technology. It's stuff that really hits home. And, you know, after watching the movie over and over again, you can kind of understand where Tooby Hooper was trying to go with it. Right.
1: What do you think of the soundtrack to this movie? Because, unlike most movie soundtracks, this. There were no instruments. It's really based off what you would hear at the inside of a slaughterhouse, which I think is like so freaking cool. It's perfect for this movie because it's minimalist, and this is really a minimalistic exactly. movie. So of the six franchises that we've been covering over the past month and a half, um, I do think the Texas Chainsaw franchise is probably the worst. It has nothing to do with this movie because, obviously, we adore this movie. I think most... I think Every slasher fan, every horror fan agrees with us. Uh, This movie is definitely in everyone's top five horror movies. Like, there's no doubt. It is a shame the uh, direction that they chose to go with this franchise. There's not
0: many perfect movies out there, uh, but this is one of them, especially from a horror perspective. But it is not our number one. No. Number one. Are you ready for number one? I don't know if I'm ready, but we're going to do it. Number one, I don't think there is any doubt, man. I think we... We went back and forth a little bit but i think ultimately in our hearts we knew where we were going with number one it is arguably the most influential horror movie of all time even though it came out four years after texas chainsaw massacre it is the 1978 classic john carpenter's halloween this is not just my favorite slasher movie of all time it's probably my favorite movie of all time It is a film, just speaking personally, that really got me into the love of horror, the love of filmmaking, the love of Halloween time. And also, it's a movie that made me perceptive
1: of music and the impact music can have in film. Uh, That music just pulls you right in. That's how the movie starts off, with that iconic theme by John Carpenter. The second you hear that music, you kind of just get chills and like... It just makes a movie that much more scary. So the plot for this movie is just so simple. Um, so um, ignore all the sequels. Um, ignore Lori and Michael, our brother and sister. Michael Myers just, he, he returns to his old house after he escapes from the um, institution. And he finds Lori Strode dropping off a key at the house. And then he just decides to stalk her for the rest of the night. And that's the plot of the movie, and that is so terrifying. With uh, Texas Chainsaw, it's a bunch of kids are seeking in the backwoods. You know, they're looking for, uh, I think, gas in the backwoods of Texas, and they get, and they go into a random house. This movie makes you feel scared to live in your own house because anyone could be stalking you and looking at you and looking to kill you.
0: A lot of people think an underlying theme of this movie is the theme of suburbia. How a lot of people. Feel safe. Feel safe in the suburbs and, and they're, you know, like they can hide behind a white picket fence. And this movie really exploits that and, and says, no, you're freaking vulnerable. And someone is always watching you, whether you know it or not. Everything to me about this movie is just classic. Again, the score, the opening scene where Michael kills his sister, Judith, the the atmosphere of Haddonfield, man, cannot be beaten. When I think horror, I think Haddonfield.
1: Right. Right. And they did a really good job. Uh, This was shot in uh, Pasadena, California, during the spring. And to make it look like Illinois, like the Midwest, you know, in fall, they nailed it.
0: You get Dr. Loomis played by Donald Pleasence. You get his classic monologue about Michael being evil. I think this is the most quotable horror movie of all time. Would you agree? Yeah, and probably thanks in large part to Donald Pleasence, who just... Just kills every line he delivers.
1: Like He's he's clearly a great actor, and they knew it because they had to pay him $20,000 to be on set for five days because that's all they could um, afford. Uh, They did spend half their budget on the uh, camera, on the uh, Panavision camera. So as low budget as this movie is, it's actually really well shot and a very pretty movie. Jamie Lee Curtis, who was
0: not their first choice to play Laurie Strode, relatively unknown actress. I believe she was on a TV show at the time. She was paid 8000 Nick Castle was paid $25 a day. <laughs> and then Tony Morin, who actually plays Michael when he takes off his mask at the end, got $250 total.
1: Well, I hope they made a little bit more after because this movie brought in $47 million at the box office um, on a $325,000 budget. And I think the camera to make this movie cost like $100,000. So that's insane but that's john carpenter though he knew what's most important and it was atmosphere and having a pretty picture when you film and speaking of budget
0: i can tell you where they definitely saved money and that was on michael's mask tommy lee wallace who was john carpenter's good friend he actually the director of halloween 3 bought the william shatner mask for a dollar 98 from a costume shop on hollywood boulevard And what he did was he widened the eye holes and he spray painted it white. He really wanted Michael Myers to have like a humorless and expressionless demeanor about him. Pulled that off. And the mask is terrifying. It's iconic. They couldn't have chosen a better mask. That's for damn sure.
1: Yeah, it's perfect. So his nickname in this movie is the Boogeyman. And he's referred to that, you know, throughout the whole franchise. And what John Carpenter said is the Boogeyman is whatever your fear is like whatever you fear most that's what the boogeyman is and that's what the mask kind of represents it's a white canvas and you put on it whatever you whatever you fear most and that's michael myers i mentioned that this
0: is one of the if not the most influential horror movies of all time and again this came out 4 years after texas chainsaw but this movie for whatever reason just sparked more interest in developing slasher films than texas chainsaw
1: sequels and all that yep so obviously the movie starts off with a six-year-old michael myers murdering his sister judith and then it uh, skips ahead 15 years so right there you kind of just you still don't know who michael myers is you don't know what he's been up to so you kind of just based off donald pleasance telling you how crazy and how dangerous michael myers is and so from there on he's kind of like a myth in his town of Haddonfield you know that's uh what tommy doyle's telling laurie strode as you know she's dropping off the key like oh you can't go to the myers house it's almost like he's not real but he's a myth and a figure to the town of Haddonfield. so when he actually arrives in Haddonfield i feel like that's just so epic that michael myers is finally terrorizing this town that everyone knows who he is but he doesn't know who these people are and he just wants to murder and stalk everybody so the idea for this movie was I don't think they were trying to go with if you're a virgin, you live. That kind of just happened by accident. Actually, what John Carpenter and what Deborah Hill said was the other characters died in this movie because they were too focused on sex and other things. They even noticed that there was a serial killer on, on the loose where uh, Laurie Stroh was you know, focused really just on babysitting and what was going on around her. Unlike Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this movie is not nearly as
0: deep. John Carpenter has debunked a lot of the myths around the right. social themes in this movie. He said he was he was not trying to make a moral statement like he wasn't he wasn't taking a stance on premarital sex or alcohol and drugs. A lot of people thought that he was taking a stance on the lives that teens in the 70s lived. He said he was just trying to make a horror movie and More than anything, he was trying to make a representation of evil, and I think that actually comes out very clearly
1: in Donald Pleasence's monologue in this film. Definitely, yeah. It's um, a movie that's been studied like crazy. I mean, you talk about how uh, Texas Chainsaw is. This is the same way. So definitely, this movie has been maybe over-analyzed. But rightfully so, because you could talk about this movie. I mean, we could do an hour-long podcast about this movie if we really wanted to. But we're not going to, because we've talked about 51 movies, and this is our last movie. <laughs> if you
0: if you had to put one word to this movie, what would it be? As simple as it is, epic. I agree. The music, the atmosphere, the characters. Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. Donald Pleasance as Dr. Loomis. The ending is perfect. They leave you in a state of suspense and, and shock. This this movie is number one, frankly, because I really think it developed our passion for horror. I can say confidently that I would not be sitting here speaking into a microphone if it wasn't for this movie.
1: Yeah, we definitely wouldn't have watched 51 movies straight if it really wasn't for this
0: movie. So that is it, man. Our we did it. Top 10 Slashers of these six major franchises. Let's run it back one last time. Are you doing all fifty-one or the top ten? Absolutely not. I'm doing the We don't the have top time 10. for
1: that shit. Okay, No, nah, I don't have all night.
0: Number ten: Halloween H. Two O. Number nine: Child's Play Two. Number eight: Friday the Thirteenth Part Six: Jason Lives. Seven: Scream Two. 6, Friday the 13th, the final chapter. 5, A Nightmare on Elm Street, the original from 1984. 4, Halloween 2. 3, Scream 2, the original 1974, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And number 1, 1978's Halloween. We are we're done, there, man. man. That is a lot of work, and it feels good to be done. I think we're probably going to go drink a beer.
1: Yeah. Dude, I'm so excited to finally just do, like, a normal podcast and do, like, one or two movies per episode. Like, this was a lot of work, uh, and I'm glad we did it, man. I had a blast doing it. There, At no point did this feel like homework. In two weeks, we will be coming back.
0: We're going to be talking about the iconic zombie films 28 Days Later, as well as 28 Weeks Later. I got a
1: question for you, Ty. Yeah. You uh want a trivia question? Hit me. Of the 51 movies that we covered, which movie has the highest kill count? Is it A, The Curse of Michael Myers, B, Jason Goes to Hell, C, Freddy vs. Jason, or D, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2? The Curse of Michael Myers. That is incorrect. And I can see why you you might think that, because of the hospital scene where he kills all those people. It's actually B, Jason Goes to Hell, with a kill count of 25. Jason Goes to Hell has the most kills of any of the 51 movies that we've covered.
0: For anyone who has followed along with this series, we thank you. We say thanks to our Twitter followers and our Instagram followers for interacting with us and supporting us.
1: Uh, Before we go, I think I have a name for our fans. How about the uh, Cornies? The Cornies. It's beautiful. And then I have a tagline. Let's get corny. Let's get corny.